Hi, I'm Dr Jolanne Farmer and I'm the new Deputy Director General for Clinical Excellence Queensland. Dr Farmer, thank you for making the time to speak with the Senate today and welcome back to Queensland Health. Thank you. You were the Medical Director with the United Nations for more than seven years before returning to Australia this year. What was the most challenging experience in your time with the UN? Um, There were plenty of challenging experiences, some of them being sort of a slow burn and some of them being sort of an intense crisis. In terms of intense crisis, probably the most intense was the period of the chemical weapons crisis in Syria, what a lot of people will remember as Obama's red line. And um, at that time, we had nearly 5,000 UN personnel um, stationed in Damascus and I was responsible for their health and safety. Um, We work in partnership with the security services, but when the security measures fail, of course, it's medical who have to intervene and try and save lives if they can be saved. And what was extremely challenging there was that um, people who perhaps lacked expertise in the complex chain of care required for chemical weapons exposure wanted with the best of intentions to provide antidote kits Um, in an environment where there was no other care available. And we were very concerned about that because of um, the antidote kits buy you about 10 minutes. And if you don't have a chain of rescue, then they don't really help. And we were also really concerned that the presence of them in our community would make people um, targets, that antidote kits being something that potentially the aggressors would have wanted as well. And so I had to sort of navigate this really complicated um, technical plus non-technical plus diplomatic um, international space. And where my colleague medical directors from the other entities and I arrived at was that we thought the best thing to do would be to really um, educate people about how to keep themselves safe rather than try and um, teach them how to use auto-injectors when there wasn't much help. So we developed a shelter-in-place protocol and helped our personnel obtain the equipment that they needed to turn their homes into safe shelters and also helped them to educate the rest of their communities as well, not just the people who work for the UN. So something that was really challenging, we were able to take into a different space and that was very rewarding. Um, definitely very challenging, but highly stressful time because we never knew when the next episode would or could happen and nothing in my past experience had really prepared me for the design of a program of safety in a chemical weapons environment. I was going to ask you exactly that. How do you prepare for something like that? (laughs) Yeah, you you can't really. It's just, um, you know, one of the things that I think I've always worked through is networks of people who know more than I do. And luckily, there's no shortage of such people in the world. And so, um, you know, I was able to draw on my colleagues um, in other entities who'd actually worked in the Office of, for the Prevention of Chemical Warfare and um, people who had greater expertise to help me frame that appropriately to be sure that I was giving, you know, not just technically correct advice, but advice that was useful because I think there's, it's always important to be both, technically correct and useful. Um, easy to say, don't do that, but then where does that leave them? So we had to find a place where things could be useful. Did you remain in the States during this time? Um, Yeah, I didn't travel into Damascus, but one of my team um, subsequently did. Um, We had a policy of making sure we minimise the footprint in a high-threat environment, and so we didn't intentionally send extra people in. But as soon as that 
um, threat sort of reduced in criticality. Um, uh, my wonderful deputy director, who actually had had significant experience working in Baghdad in the green zone and was also an emergency physician, um, he deployed to do an assessment of the available infrastructure for support and then to beef it up a little bit. So we did what we could from afar. We worked through local facilities and people on the ground and then when it was safe to do so, um, deployed one of our own people to add a sort of an extra layer of robustness to the support. Jillian, is working for the UN something you'd wanted to do since becoming a doctor? Really, really interesting question because when I was a little tiny, tiny girl, I had sort of had this little dream of working at the UN and, I, you know, it was that classic immature child dream. So when I was seven or eight years old, um, I read this book uh, that was about um, United Nations Day out of school and all the children turned up in different costumes with different types of food and I was absolutely enchanted by the idea that there was this diversity of cultures and language and everything in the world and that's when I first started to think that working for the United Nations might be kind of cool and then I largely, um, as I moved into a medical career, I kind of gave up on that and I looked at sort of the NGOs and aid work a couple of times but other opportunities in Australia to do sort of work that would contribute to the social good kept cropping up and I sort of I would be thinking of going overseas and then something would come up in Australia that I would do. Eventually, I um, I decided that I would like to have a tilt at working for the UN, but at that point, I actually thought that would mean walking away from my medical career. Um, I didn't even realise that the UN itself had a medical service. It's distinct from the WHO, but the United Nations Secretariat, the job that I had, um, is largely invisible to the world. And so when I started looking at UN jobs, I thought I might be using some of my broader skills in a different way. And within a couple of weeks of me starting to look through UN jobs, the medical director job posted up. It was the surprise of my life. And then immediately after that, an even bigger surprise when they actually offered me the job. So you're from Rockhampton originally and started your medical career with Queensland Health. Before you left to take on the role with the UN, you were the medical director of Queensland Health's Patient Safety Centre. What has brought you back to Australia from New York? So um, a couple of things. First of all, um, uh, my heart stayed in Queensland largely Mm -hmm. and literally because my husband remained here. Um, We made a decision not to relocate him to New York because I was travelling so much anyway. So I had a very strong family reason for returning to Queensland but also my professional heart stayed here because a lot of the reform work that I was able to do in the UN was very much driven by the things that I had learned and done in Queensland Health. So, um, and even as recently as last year, when I needed, for example, telehealth expertise, I reached out to um, John, who was John Wakefield, who was then in the job I'm in now, mm-hmm. to ask for his assistance to help brief the peacekeeping nations about the potential of telehealth in our far-flung peacekeeping missions. And um, we were really delighted to be able to bring a couple of fantastic Queensland experts to an international symposium to show the world what Queensland was doing and to inspire them to start to apply those kinds of methodologies for the United Nations. So a little bit of my heart was always in Queensland. And when um, this opportunity came up, it kind of just everything lined up and I'm really excited and happy to be here. And you've come home in the middle of COVID-19. In fact, I think it was pretty touch and go as to whether you were going to get back there with the flights. But how does um, Queensland's response compare to responses in other parts of the world? 
Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so it was a really surreal experience living through COVID in New York. I think the early days of the New York outbreak are going to go down as a case study of what can go wrong. And um, I, I say that with the deepest respect for my colleagues who became very dear colleagues in the New York City Department of Health and Hygiene. And I want to acknowledge the astoundingly strong response that they were subsequently able to mobilise. But when you study pandemic response, um, you know, I'm a fellow of the College of Medical Administrators and one of our core topics in terms of my fellowship was preparation for, you know, disaster preparation and pandemic as a subset of that. And I felt like I was just living through an exam question where everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And um, I remember the moment when I realised that the city had lost containment of the pandemic when they, um, in a teleconference, announced that they had given up contact tracing. I had had a cluster in the UN school and I was waiting for them to mobilise the contact tracers. So I was kind of holding my own people back going, no, the city will do this because our school is on, you know, New York City territory. And the department said we're not contact tracing because at this point everybody, every person in New York is regarded as a contact. So there is no point in contact tracing. And that for me, that was just an absolute heart in my throat moment. And within days, I advised the Secretary-General that we should move the UN personnel into telecommuting arrangements. And we stepped rapidly through part-time and then into full 100% telecommute, except for the absolute base critical staff. So you look at that end of the spectrum of how containment was lost through a lack of testing and a lack of public health capacity. And you look at the amazing assertive but measured response that Queensland and Australia put, including, you know, some pretty courageous moves. And I have nothing but admiration for the way the Queensland chose managed this. And um, I would really like to expressly say on the record when I needed some key advice, in the middle of my own pandemic crisis, it was the Queensland show that I reached out to, and um, I, you know, and even in the middle of everything that was happening here, um, the show and her team managed to find a little bit of time to give me some bandwidth and help me through something that I was navigating. So the Queensland response, in my view, was um, nothing short of spectacular. Gillian, what advice do you have for Queensland clinicians on the front line during COVID nineteen? Oh gosh, that's a that's a tough one. Um, that's a really tough one, and I think that the, the my main bit of advice actually is to do everything you can to keep yourself well. Um, I think it's just amazing and fantastic that Queensland has not had um, any occupationally acquired um, cases, and that we've not had any healthcare worker fatalities. I was. Um, very concerned in the early days of the outbreak coming out from Wuhan. One of the things that I was trying to assess was how much risk was my healthcare workforce at because as the medical director of the UN, um, I had responsibility for over 400 healthcare facilities of varying grades, not all hospitals. There were only about 25 hospitals in there. But um, so one of the things I was really trying to assess is how much risk were my healthcare workers at? 
and trying to get data about um, healthcare worker infections was very difficult. And of course, the data continues to evolve. And um, it's been really good to see the partnership between the Senate and um, and the department and the CEs working to ensure that we have processes and procedures and equipment in place to keep clinicians safe. Uh, if you know, older Dodge, put your own oxygen mask on first. And managing both the physical environment and one's own fatigue levels are very important. One of the things we learned during the Ebola outbreak um, was that um, fatigued clinicians are at risk of making mistakes with their PPE. So if I gave any advice at all to the clinicians of Queensland, I feel it's wrong, like I shouldn't because I'm not the one out there. They should be the ones telling me. But it is look after yourself and be extra vigilant about your fatigue levels because it's harder to look after yourself when you're exhausted. Gillian, the Senate celebrated its 10th birthday recently. It was originally supported by the Patient Safety Centre during your time as Medical Director. What did you hope the Senate would achieve and enable when it first began? So um, what I hope for, so I would I would just that by saying I wasn't actually the original architect of the Senate. It was something that I um, inherited during an organisational restructure. So I can't claim to have been the intellect behind its design. Mm-hmm. But when I was working with the Senate, what I, what I really hoped for in those early days was that the clinical staff um, would have a, re- a real voice, not just a voice to document issues, but a voice that had influence and was able to help us actually solve issues and problems. And the early days, I think we did better at documenting issues than at solving them. And I've been, you know, it's been really great to come back after such a gap and see where the Senate has moved to. It's actually really cool. What do you hope the Senate will achieve in the coming years? Um, So I'm very much, and, and maybe this is something about me that, that, either changed or became more pronounced when I was um, working in the UN was that I really, really became very invested in the idea of collective intelligence, that many brains are smarter than one brain, even if the one brain is the world expert, a group of people working together are likely to get to better answers. And that's the key thing that I really I see being so valuable in the Senate now and that I think that we can work with. I've been really pleased to see the growth in the strength of partnership between the Senate and the networks and the Senate and the consumers. And being able to have the consumers and the clinical personnel and the district chief executives and the department representatives having real discussions about the actual difficult issues, not some proxies that get put up, but having real discussions about the actual issues and then coming up with implementable solutions. This is, um, that's when it's really gold and that's what I would love to um, to see. I'm already seeing it. I'm not saying it's not happening now, um, but I would like that to become easier than it is now and I would really like um, us to be in a situation where in all things our, um, our clinical personnel and the consumers um, and the managers are partners in this, that we all actually have exactly the same goal and that can get lost in, as people retreat to trying to work out what their, what their position on topics are. But when we focus on that common interest, 
of getting the best possible care for the patient at the best value. That's what we all want and that's when the magic happens. And finally, Jillian, you're now heading up Clinical Excellence Queensland. What is your five-year goal for the division? <laughs> if I'm not asking that too early, you haven't been in the position yeah, for very long. <laughs> I've been here for 13 days. <laughs> day 13. So, no, I don't have a five-year goal yet because my um, I'm still very, very much in data gathering phase mm-hmm. um, and I have made sort of a promise to the team here that anything that I start enunciating as a goal or a shift in any way is going to be very well considered and consulted. So I'm not going to shoot from the hip on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, I can see some things that are great opportunities, certainly coming into this space in the aftermath of COVID when in some regards the system had to reset. I think there's a real opportunity there to capture some of the some of the good juice, some of the secret sauce, and really try to avoid just snapping back to what we had before. And I think the Senate did some great work. I was able to sit in on the Senate's virtual meeting, uh, held a couple of days before I actually started in the job, and I was able to sit in on that and I've seen the subsequent report. I think if we can really focus on what change that allowed us to be innovative and bottle that, we'll be in for a really good five years. But I won't tell you what the destination is just yet. (laughs) We'll have to revisit. Well, thank you very much for chatting with with us and particularly for finding time for us on day 13 of your new job. It's um, (laughs) It's been fabulous talking with you. Thanks very much. It's my great pleasure and I look forward to a time when I can tell you more about where we're going. 